Planning Kubernetes infrastructure can be challenging, particularly when the end user, the final client, could end up having different technical levels in terms of their maturity when it comes to using these technologies. I got a chance to speak to Vasily and Ronald from Lovatech. They told me about their experience with application migration from Docker Compose to Kubernetes, how, what, and the problems that they encountered along the way. Not only does this dynamic duo work together when it comes to Kubernetes challenges, but they also play music, playing different instruments and singing. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Check it out. Ronald, Vasily, welcome to KubeFN. Hey, happy to be here. Great to have you. Hey, Bart. Yeah, thank you for having us on your podcast. Absolute pleasure. Ronald, starting out with you, what three tools would you install on a new Kubernetes cluster? Yeah, um, I think uh, it's definitely would be Argo CD, a powerful DevOps tool with a pretty uh, pretty useful web interface. Uh, and, and it's uh, like first one, because then by using Argo CD, I would install other components in cluster. Uh, the next tool I think would be Prometheus because it's important to monitor what's happening in your cluster with your application and Prometheus with Grafana and Alert Manager is a good way to do it. Uh, and I think Keda, uh, Keda is the third one. Uh, because you know the one of the useful features of Kubernetes is scaling, and Keda uh, provides more opportunities here, but because we can use custom metrics. We have a previous guest from the podcast, Jorge, who's a Keda maintainer, who will be very happy to hear that. Uh, in addition to Argo CD and Prometheus, as you mentioned, Vasily, do you agree, disagree? Anything you would add or modify there? Yeah, I totally agree with this. And uh, I'd say that uh, in, in most of our projects, these are like three go tools that go anywhere because they're like Swiss Army knife. You can't just go wrong with them. <laughs> if if you go this route, you will have things covered for sure. Fantastic. That being said, Ronald, just to dig into your background a little bit more, can you tell us a little about, about who you are and where you're working at the moment? Uh-huh. Uh, so... I'm a DevOps lead uh, in a team of four engineers, and I've been working at Luvatech uh, for four years. Uh, so me and my team, we mainly work on cloud infrastructure, mostly in AWS and prefer Kubernetes as a container orchestration tool. And uh, so my team works on the uh, like applications that the Luvatech develops, and also we help to customers who have their own uh, developers team, and we help them as a DevOps vendor. All right. Vasily, what about you? Uh, me and Ronald, we're co-workers, so we both work at Luvatech, and uh, I'm the CDO, so I'm essentially I'm responsible for the delivery of our services. So what we do we do uh, like custom development as a service, product development as a service, and uh, uh, as an outsourcing service. So people come to us when they need to develop a product or support an existing application or maybe do some cloud infrastructure project. And uh, what basically I do in, in the company is uh, that I make sure that we deliver what we promise to the client. And uh, this is like an a very important part and that encompasses software development infrastructure and also uh you know talking to client when the client is uh, maybe panicking or <laughs> thinking that we might not be on time but we will be on time of course as always and uh, me and ronald we met uh, back in the day in 2018 when we were just looking for a systems administrator, we were not cloud native at the time, like at all. We just needed someone to help us uh, with, you know, managing Linux machines and just, you know, doing things the old fashioned way. And that's how we met. And uh, ever since I'd say that me and Ronald, we grew together like as professionals and uh, we grew with the technology that we use. So that that was our, you know, joint journey uh, in Luvatech for the two of us. Fantastic. With that in mind, you know, you said about six years ago, what was that process like of getting into cloud native technologies, specifically with Kubernetes? 
what was it like before using it and how did you go about learning it? Yeah, I, I say that uh, we as a company, uh, we mostly evolve based on the projects that we do and uh, the projects that we have had like in our early days, they were not as complex and we were not as tech savvy as, <laughs> as we are right now. And uh, 2018, that was a different time. That was a time when uh, you would seriously consider if you, if you need to go the container route or you would just, you know, do it the classic old-fashioned way. That was a choice back then. Now you don't have a choice. Like, you just fire up Docker and that's uh, that's what everyone does. Back in the day, it was not like that. And I'd say that uh, it was precisely the time, the moment when we understood that we need to level up our game a bit because we already started struggling with some things that involved uh, like high availability, reliability of the services. And uh, as a company, we are a small company and we don't have the luxury of having like uh, a crowd of engineers uh, that, uh, you know, may do a lot of things, you know, manually. We strived on automation from the day one. We needed to cover a lot of things with just a few people. And we came to a point when we understood that even with automation tools in place like Ansible, like uh, we, we may mostly use Ansible and Terraform, that was not enough to, you know, manage applications that we were, you know, working with uh, later. So we needed to make that leap because uh, we understood that we just spent too much time on fighting things that were just solved in Kubernetes just by design. That's great. One thing thinking about there too is, like you said, learn the technology is one thing, but on top of it, based on the team that you have, you know, how many engineers are at your disposal, that's definitely going to shape it more. Ronald, in your experience, were there any key resources or things that helped you learn Kubernetes? Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I remember clearly that when I uh, like first started learning about Kubernetes, it wasn't easy. Yeah. Uh, so, I think I uh, mostly I use as theory. I use like articles on Medium or and other resources, videos from conferences. And uh, so I think the balance, I, I just used the balance between theory and practice. So I had like a real task uh, and used uh, these sources. And of course, Kubernetes documentation and Stack Overflow did their job. Their go-to resources for a reason. Just want to see if there's anything that makes sense. It's not there's Google or Stack Overflow, it probably doesn't exist, right? Yes. And I mean, uh, you know, it's funny that back in the days you would go and buy a book on a subject. Nowadays, you can't just write a book in Kubernetes because it will be obsolete in a year or, or something like that. So we've got a new way to learn things now. Like you said, keeping it fresh and, it, and it's no coincidence we'll be speaking today is more specifically about an article. That being said, if you could go back in time and give any advice to your previous self about, you know, hey, avoid this or focus on that when it comes to learning Kubernetes, what would you recommend there, Vasily? I'd say that uh, I, I really thought uh, that, uh, I, th I really think that we went right, you know, with, with the technology side. I, I wish we would do this earlier, though. Uh, there's, there's maybe some time lost when we just were, you know, drifting in a way, so should we do this or not? We just have a way of doing things. And uh, I mean, as an engineer, you should be more open to trying new things and devote some time into, you know, tinkering with stuff. Maybe like 80% uh, of what you try that will be like useless tools in the future that you will just throw away. But still you gain experience and you look at new things. So I think that as an engineer, it's vital that you you know, always spend time on some bleeding edge, edge technology that's completely new and uh, that really moves you forward because people who didn't do that at the time, they have a huge disadvantage right now. And uh, the second point I think is that we might be better off reaching out more to the community because back in, back in those days, we were like constrained in our own box. Uh, we were just our team and that. And uh, right now we're speaking here and one question is I ask, why wouldn't we do something like this five years earlier? Like what, what held us? Like nothing held us, just ourselves. So 
uh, you know, the community and what you're doing here, you know, is a great way to spread knowledge, you know, uh, glue people, move, move people together to, you know, share things. So that's a beautiful things to do. And you can start doing it anytime. Like everyone has something to bring in. Everybody has their unique experiences and you always have something to tell the world about. I think it's a, a wonderful point about two things. A, the part about trial and error with different tools, you know, like not everything is going to work, but it doesn't mean it's a waste of time. There are going to be yes, exactly. process of elimination. You're going to be getting your eyes and ears open, both to the technologies themselves, as well as the people who are building them to understand their logic, the pain points they're trying to solve. Then the other point that you mentioned is about making community part of your solution. And there's so many different ways to do that which is very beneficial because some people don't want to do a podcast or they don't want to write a blog, but everyone can find their community fit, whether it's being a lurker in a Slack channel or a discord server, it's, it's really <laughs> yes. up to everyone to decide yes. what's going to work best for them. But I think it's a solid point, Ronald, anything that you would add there? Oh, you know, I think I just agree. Everything that Vasily said, I think nothing, nothing to really add here. You published an article about application migration from Docker Compose to Kubernetes, the how, why, and what. Now, you you know work with different kinds of customers that have different maturity levels. Can you give us some examples of things that you've encountered regarding that, where some companies might be a little bit more advanced than others, things you have to keep in mind when helping them migrate from one technology to another? Yeah, um, our portfolio of clients, like a very different because uh, some of them are startups on early stages. Some are internal internal projects of an enterprise company. For example, like there's one project where there's a food food manufacturer that has large manufacturing plants, and uh, the software they needed was a system that could you know help them to uh, simplify the the relationship with the suppliers, so to help them you know, um, better communicate with their suppliers to organize that process, etc. Uh, this is not a system that, you know, is getting any sort of high load and they need to host it on premises. Like there's their requirement that it's got to be installed somewhere. And then you go talk to their IT team. And if you mention something like Kubernetes, they will say, oh, that's too much overhead. Why? We don't, we don't need this. Let, we'll just give you two machines and that's it. Uh, and you say, that, what, what about failover? What about high level? Oh, it doesn't matter if, if the system goes down for you know, half a day. Well, just nothing uh, like uh, nothing will break in that hard that, uh, you know, th uh, that would justify, you know, given the extra overhead and extra management overhead, etc. So, and many of our projects are too simple or don't have that high requirements for, you know, the availability and the scalability to justify uh, the overhead that you inevitably get with Kubernetes. Like I, I say, like Docker Compose, it's not going anywhere because like, it's super simple. You just look at the example of how Docker Compose is structured and you can write a Docker Compose file yourself. Like every, every developer can write a Docker Compose file like with no, with no learning curve like at all. And uh, one thing that we always do, we keep all every application containerized. So this can help us to, further, uh, in the, to, to migrate to something like Kubernetes in the future. But uh, yeah, most of our projects are, are not as infrastructure heavy or demanding as others, but some of them are like very infrastructure demanding. And that's where uh, our engineers spend a lot of time, you know, uh, working on the infrastructure. And some projects, we just have literally templates for Docker Compose files for, you know, the typical services. So we have like building blocks that we can use to quickly spin up a deployment for a more simple application. Now, one of the clients that, you know, where the infrastructure seemed to be a little bit trickier or that at least stood out in the article is a client of yours called Picvario. Yeah, if I yeah, that's it. them. Uh, so in terms of what, can you just walk us through, you know, that that the app and, and the infrastructure when they first asked for help as, as, as opposed to where they're at now, what does that look like? Uh, we actually started developing Picvario from scratch because uh, the founder came us with an idea, I see, he said that I see a market for digital asset management systems that is not covered yet. So 
what Picvario does, it helps a company that has a lot of like media content, say sports team or news media or a museum or or a uh, Kubernetes podcast. <laughs> or a Kubernetes <laughs> podcast that has a lot of audio, video <laughs> and image materials, yes, in place. And uh, the problem, the, the first problem is organizing that, but the biggest problem is finding the right content when you need it, like for a sports team, when you need to pull up a picture of uh, one of your like sports team uh, athletes, you need to pull it up from a game that happened three years ago uh, with that particular team. And uh, how do you, do you, you, you just, you just go and go, go to a Google Drive folder and try, you know, to... <laughs> click through things to find this you've got need, you need something better in place so picvario does exactly that and it's uh um unlike many systems of this class it's adapted towards companies that want to you know build their own media content bank but that was just an idea in the beginning and in so when we started working on that we had like zero infrastructure in place and the only task at hand that we had was moving very fast because we needed to iterate like super fast because uh, they had some initial investment they needed to be very careful with that budget because you, you couldn't just burn it uh without you know thinking you needed to you know account for every cent spent and they were also working on the first sale and that first sale it was to an enterprise client and they found uh, like uh, a minimal viable product uh, concept that involved like very basic features, like being able to upload the content process, find it like in the, in the simplest way. And we were working on delivering that MVP. And now uh, with that in mind, we just didn't have nor, nor time, nor the resources to, you know, work on some complex infrastructure. We just needed the developers to, you know, bring in features, bring in features, bring in features. And as that was like an MVP launch, there were no, like hard, any hardcore requirements for how well it should handle the load because the client had like 50 gigabytes of content. Like you just, it's just, it's, it's, it's not a lot. You, you don't need like super a lot of computer computing, no. you know, power to process that. So, and I think that one important point here is that your infrastructure and generally your technical complexity of the project that involves its infrastructure architecture like how the code looks how it's structured it should follow the development stages of the product so when it's early stage and a lot of things are undefined and you don't know how the product will turn like what features would be you know in place how would they consume resources you don't need to you know, come up with something complex at this stage. You just want to keep things simple. And then as the product evolves, you naturally support it by introducing more complexity in parts that just need it. And that's the way we did it with Picvario. We started like with nothing and it was a Docker Compose file with five services. Then it had 10 services. Then after a year, it had... 25 services in it and that's and that was the moment where when we started scratching our heads and thinking hey this is uh ground out of control we gotta do something about this and we were also having the uh issues with handling the spikes in load because there were just some com static computing power allocated to the project and when people started uploading a lot of things like the, the interesting feature about picvario is that it features all kinds of workloads. You have file uploads, you have uh, picture and video processing, like transcoding, like preparing it for small previews, for streaming, for like different formats. You have like AI workflows to detect things on photos uh, and you have uh, search. So the ability to find things in the index when there are millions of assets. So Picvario cover, covers all type of workloads that you have in a modern system. And that was a challenge too. Uh, so that's when me and Ronald, we started to think that we need to change things up and, you know, elevate the infrastructure to follow the, you know, the product development. With that in mind, uh, Ronald, you had 25 different services running on, um, on a single host. <laughs> how big? How, I, just, I just want that to stand out. I want that to sink in. How big was that virtual machine, and was it on steroids? 
<laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, 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 it was big, yeah, but it worked. Yeah, it worked, uh, but of course with some limitations. Uh, yeah, so yeah, infrastructure was quite cheap uh, and easy to maintain, but uh, it had a number of drawbacks uh, that we just need to fix. Uh, like, you know, the lack of fault tolerance, because uh, when and like we uh, we had some problems with virtual machine or network in the specific availability zone in cloud provider so it, it could be the result of the application failure uh you know we had a single point of failure so problems with one application component uh can impact other components in case of memory leaks or uh high cpu usage and uh so it's not critical when, you know, one like worker is not performing correctly, but it's a major issue when, yeah, uh, when because of that the front end or back end, uh, so the main components of application is not performing correctly, or even worse, uh, they are they are down. So yeah, that that was the like the problems. And so getting to that point, you know, the problems starting to realize, all right this is not sustainable. We've got to take it somewhere else. When you were evaluating, you know, the different options, whether it was Kubernetes, Ansible, Docker Swarm, eventually you did decide on Kubernetes. What influenced that decision? And did the migration start immediately after that? Or was there a waiting time? Walk me through that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we understood that the current solution requires reworking from scratch. Uh, uh, and so we, we, yeah, we have, uh, basically we have analyzed different options. Uh, first of all, of course, we were thinking about, uh, Kubernetes because it's the current like standard, it's the most popular platform for container orchestration. Uh, but also we also looked at other options because some team members had doubts about Kubernetes and thought that it's like a overkill solution and that we should go with something simpler to maintain and cheaper. So yeah, we discussed like research different options, for example, using Ansible with Docker model to orchestrate containers across several hosts and distribute traffic by a load balancer. Uh, also, we considered Docker Swarm, but you know, after research, we like, uh, we understood that all these solution, all these solutions looks uh, like looks like a compromise. They could help uh, and improve some of the challenges that we had, but only for a short time, and not as effective uh, as Kubernetes. Uh, so yeah, we we chose Kubernetes, but uh, we we didn't uh, didn't start migrating after that. Yeah, because, yep. yeah, what Vasily. Uh -huh. Go for it, Vasily. Yeah, um, the, the issue was that, like, uh, when you uh, read up something about how, how do you migrate to Kubernetes, the first thing that you hear that your application should be stateless, right? So you shouldn't, like, store some persistent state uh, on the node or in the container itself, but... Uh, the devil is in the detail because it, it's easy to say that make your application stateless, blah, blah. But how do you actually do it when you know uh, have the actual challenges that uh, come with it? And we had two. Uh, one of them was that we had a sophisticated process of file uploading because you just can't upload a large file like several gigabytes via a browser in just one post request it just won't work uh, and none of the web service will let that pass through uh, and you will encounter timeouts etc so we chunk upload we uh, separate the file uploaded into multiple smaller chunks and they are sent to the backend separately and then the backend uh just uh, stitches them together to get the final file and that that was easy to do when you we had just that machine we we actually had all the files like in a file system path so it's like images and there it goes like 
folder structure with the content, the media media content that you have. And the chunked uploads, they just went into the temp folder on the machine and then the backend could easily, you know, just use the file names to stitch them together and here you go, here's your file. But something that you just can't do in Kubernetes just because you can't rely that, you know, this folder will be available to everyone and uh, it's, just, it's just not easy to pull off this trick. So uh, what we ended up with, uh, first, of course, we moved everything to S3 and... Uh, to this day, it's just S3 is you, you can never go wrong with using S3 for storage. It's just it just works. And uh, for the upload part, we used an interesting feature of the S3 called multi-part uploads. It's the S3 protocol allows you to uh, create multi-part uploads as a part of its protocol. So you literally you upload those chunks and then tell it to stitch them together and it, here it goes and it all happens on the bucket without you even having to you know write some specific code for it yourself you just it's an api call and uh, this is the first thing the second was the processing because we have a lot of things that happen to every uploaded assets you need to transcode it do some ai magic you have to extract metadata you you have a lot of things to work on and it's all asynchronous so it's all uh like happening in back in background via salary workers that you know have a task in queue they go they fetch the asset and they work with it and the problem is that uh many things like ffmpg they require you to uh you know provide the file name on a file system, and most of the tools that we use, they most of them take a file system path as an argument. And uh, uh, when you have that distributed, you just can't have the temporary file somewhere, you know, uh, on a uh, on, to rely that it's uh, present on every node. Uh, so we did some changes to that, and this went in two stages. First, we were just uploading the file to S3, then a worker pulled it back to work on it to a temp folder and uh, it, it uses a small optimization that it doesn't do it twice if the file is already present but in the end we just went with the shared like scratch file system it it, it, it uh, ended up with introducing less delay uh, you can be always sure that the files in the scratch, scratch space are always accessible so my advice if you encounter something like this don't be shy to use things like Amazon Elastic file system, just throw it in, connect it everywhere, and it will just work and it will size itself according to the scratch space. Because sometimes people upload like 50 gigabyte video files, like raw, uncompressed video files, and you, you, you must be sure that, you know, you have space to accommodate for such huge uploads in, the, in your temporary scratch space so just go with the uh, elastic file system or something like that you you can't go wrong it, it will just put so much headache off you so that were the two things that we changed in the application you know to become stateless and with deploying and you know uh planning the infrastructure how did you organize your Kubernetes clusters? And also on top of that, were you working with a specific cloud provider or were you totally agnostic at that point? At that moment, uh, all, all infrastructure was already deployed in cloud provider. So we, and no, no changes were planned there. So we were thinking about how to create Kubernetes cluster here. So there were two options. The first option was to deploy an on-premises Kubernetes cluster or virtual machines using KubeSpray or another similar tool. Uh, and the second option is to use a managed service uh, from a cloud provider. So almost all providers uh, offer such services, for example, AWS EKS, Azure AKS, uh, and etc. So, and the main point is in using Kubernetes service in cloud, uh, is that the responsibility for the uh, control plane configuration and performance is on the cloud provider side. So as an engineer, I can focus directly on deploying and managing uh, my application in the cluster, setting up uh, like Kubernetes system components, like auto-scaling, ingress controller, setting up working nodes, monitoring, and so on. So 
you don't need to set up a control plane or troubleshoot it. Uh, uh, so it's easier to like update the Kubernetes version. Uh, yeah, of, of course you need to, when you perform it, you need to do some research, you need to do some actions. You need to, so for example, if you upgrade a uh, Kubernetes version in AWS, you need to go to AWS documentation, check uh, like what, what changed uh, in your version, what you, what the preparations you need to do, but it's like, uh, you need uh, a lot less to do. So yeah, we, we chose the option of using cloud service. So it's, it's like, uh, it's, uh, it's because as I said, it's required less time from engineers and it is easy to maintain. And also because it's more cost-effective because like, uh, well, you know, for, for example, in EKS, you need to pay something like $75 per month for high availability EKS control plane. So yeah. And yeah, 2023 is definitely the year of cost optimization. And uh, Vasily, I'm sure you hear a lot about that from customers. But going back to our magic number 25, you know, you're running, you know, deploying 25 services in test and prod could require some tweaking of variables and, and, and things of that nature. Did you have in, did you use any templating engine for that? Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, we use, we, uh, sure, we are using uh, Helm charts for that. Uh, because it uh, allows us to minimize the count of configuration files. So instead of using just standard Kubernetes manifest, uh, we have like several universal Helm templates that we use for all environments and all application components. And uh, we can set up necessary parameters with uh, various files. So it makes uh, configuration easier and allows us to implement a uh, don't repeat yourself approach so and uh of course we we made some changes in our ci cd tools and approaches uh before the migration we used team city for building docker images and deploying them and after that we uh, we continued to uh, we continued using it for building images but started to use argo cd uh, as a deployment tool uh so Argo CD performs deployment of our Helm charts to the cluster. And in the article, just to take, you know, Argo CD further, you mentioned the beginning of the podcast about, you know, why one of the three tools you would install on a, on a new Kubernetes cluster. In the article, you talked about the GitOps push and pull comparison. Can you share with us, you know, what exactly happened there? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so there are two different models of deployment. Push model is where your CI/CD tool performs deployment steps, so it has access to the environment and push changes. So, for example, it just perform Helm install or kubectl uh, install or apply command. So we use this. Uh, actually, we use this approach before migration. So TeamCity just uh, did SSH exec to the host and just run Docker compose commands uh, on virtual machine. So pull model, uh, pull model is how GitOps works. You have an operator like Argo CD or Flux installed in your cl uh, Kubernetes cluster, and it monitors the state of your Git repository. And when it's uh, when it changes, it's like uh, automatically starts synchronizations and, and updates your application. So bo both approaches. Uh, have their advantages and disadvantages, so we decided to combine them. So as before, we use uh, TeamCity to build images, and then we uh, use uh, we still use TeamCity for launching the deep deploy pipeline that just passes the image ID variable to Argo CD and triggers it to sync applications. So that's how it works. Now we've heard quite a few different things here. This migration was no easy task from what it sounds. And, but what was the result after so much work? What was the client's feedback? What did they have to say about that? What were your conversations at that point, Vasily? Uh, I'd say that uh, we really got what we were after because the main like pain point for us at that time was that uh, with the setup that we had before, 
if we had multiple clients uploading a lot of information into the system, like a lot of content, uh, that would become a huge bottleneck because uh, our queue would get just overloaded if we had too much stuff waiting for to be processed. And uh, the clients, of course, they were complaining because, you, I mean, we all expect that if, if we upload things to the system, it just gets processed instantly. And if you have to wait, then what is happening there? They time like is money. Money. My audience wants to see this right now. Yeah. The peak time with certain demand. Yeah, we can understand that for sure. Of course, of course. If you are, if, if you are like a, a photographer on a sports game, you just want to upload the stuff as, 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 with the little delay as possible. So after like the first period, you go upload it and uh, send it to your, you know, uh, to your editor's team. And uh, you don't want to wait on things. And that, that, that was the point when it became evident that we need to, you know, change things like transcoding and uploading and the processing of uploads. It was the largest pain point. And uh, with Kubernetes, we nailed exactly that because uh, with the cloud service, we had an easy way to, you know, order more resources, scale up and scale down as we needed. And like that was a textbook example of uh, using cloud technology to, you know, being effective with your budget and uh, getting resources as you need. So we just used the thing that clouds were just designed for, <laughs> you know, by their nature. And with Kubernetes, it was so easy to, you know, make that happen because you didn't have to worry about you know just nothing you 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 set up your scaling policy you've uh, just set the you know the boundaries for it the triggers and here you go uh, it just it just works and uh you know it's some kind of magic that in the end justified the overhead and things we had to go through with that so the just the quality of service improved dramatically and we no longer have had those moments when we had clients complain about that. So that was a huge win for us. That's great. You know, we've talked a lot about the, the technical elements here in terms of all the different choices you had to make about what were you going to use. In terms of helping the client level up, what was that process like? Because, you know, you mentioned at the beginning about how uh, for in some in some instances, you mentioned the word Kubernetes is like, no, 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 we're definitely not doing that. Or that's overkill, things like that. What was the process like? You know, you talked about your own journeys of Stack Overflow and, you know, Kubernetes documentation. What was it like, you know, communicating these technical choices to the client and bringing them along? Sometimes we hear that it's not necessary for clients to know about everything, not because you're trying to hide something, but just to reduce complexity. What was your approach there? That was not easy. <laughs> Uh, because uh, we are super open with our clients and uh, we just, I, I say that we never hide things from our clients and we believe that transparency is, is the way to go. But, uh, you know, we engineers, we understand why Kubernetes is the way to go, why certain technology is, uh, you know, more advanced and, you know, gives you more capabilities than the other and we all, as engineers, we understand that. But then you go to a client and you say, hey, we need to do X. We need to, you know, go to Kubernetes, change that, change our game. And he says, all right, how much would that cost? That's the, the number one question. How much is gonna is that going to cost me is the question number one. And the second is, what we do, what do we get out of it? Like, what what is the value that uh, you provide? And uh, if uh, you, this requires two things. First, uh, the client got to trust you, you know, you got to earn the trust of the client. So he or she understands that uh, you can be trusted with making such decisions. And sometimes, you know, if you have good relationships with the client, uh, you can come to a point where, where you say that we absolutely need this. And, uh, you know, just we need that. And he says like, okay, I trust you with that. Just uh, don't burn too much money when you, <laughs> when you do that. Uh, and uh, the second is uh, that uh, you got to think hard about justifying the value that the client gets. Because if uh, you just want to, you know, uh, sell something like this, you got to come with a value proposition. And in our case, we did attempt that before, but we didn't have 
a solid value proposition, you know, at hand. We just said, okay, this will improve the availability. This, this will improve the reliability, etc. And the client said, well, we don't need that too much right now. Like we have 20 clients and uh, they do not have as much data in the system right now. And uh, if the system goes down for an evening, you know, that'll do. So it was not just uh, enough justification for the client to go with something like that. But then when we grew, when we started experiencing those pains, then our value proposition became clear. We do this, we spend this much budget on, you know, uh, migrating to Kubernetes and we will solve this problem that directly impacts your business and the satisfaction of your of your clients. So that's a great value proposition and, you know, anyone would agree with something like that. So if you want to sell some project like this to your boss or to the business or to your clients, you've got to think very hard about coming up with a good value proposition. Otherwise, they just shrug their shoulders and say, hey, let's save the budget for now. We will, you know, spend it on adding new features or, or something like that. I like that. And that's a common topic, you know, that it's like, don't just throw bells and whistles at me. Tell me about you know, like reliability, availability, uh, you know, latency, multi-tenancy, downtime, all this sort of stuff. Sounds nice, but how does this translate into practical business yes. value? I know that's tough. And engineers are like, look, I didn't get an MBA. You know, I'm not a business owner. <laughs> but your, your customers are definitely going to be thinking about that. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you know, you, you created this, this article, what was your objective overall in creating it? Um, what's the reaction that you're hoping people will have? First of all, I think I just wanted to share my experience with, with the community, because as I said, when I learned, uh, and when actually, when I just like did the, this migration, I used a lot of information from community from articles, videos, and, uh, documentation. So I thought it might be useful for someone and, uh, plus I, I think I just wanted to try myself in, uh, writing. So it was my first and I think not, uh, last experience. Uh, and also, you know, it's like a kind of, uh, documentation for a new team members. So, uh, uh, they use this article as, uh, information about the project. And infrastructure, they can can find out uh, what was done, how it was implemented, and even why we decide decided this solution. That's great, and I think you know sharing is caring, and also internally on your team, you know that when people are getting started, you don't have to repeat yourself five hundred times. Say, hey, just go read this; it's all it's all there, and it also stimulates that general curiosity that I think all good engineers have of that. You know, of course, you can ask questions to people directly, but what effort have you made to find that answer on your own? And when you haven't been able to find it, that's when you jump in a Slack channel or you go to a coworker and say, hey, I've checked these three other places and I haven't found something. What's your experience been? Or could you share something that might be helpful? So that's a great lesson that's learned there. Now, Vasily, what's next uh, for you? Having had this experience, do you plan on writing more blogs? Will you start hosting your own podcast? What's going to happen? <laughs> I think that uh, yeah, we wanna we wanna write more material on what we're doing because since then uh, we had several more. Even in this project, for example, we've introduced things like uh, scaling of custom metrics, and uh, we did some interesting things regarding the uh, you know implementation of fair queues. For example, we have a multi-tenant architecture, and uh, we'll need we need to make sure that. Uh, we treat each of the tenants equally so we don't have one of them overflowing other uh, clients. So we have an interesting case in Picvari about this and, uh, you know, several other things that happened. And uh, Ronald uh, is right now working on some huge infrastructure projects that involve, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people from all over the globe, uh, you know, consuming them and working with them. So... I think that's something that we, you know, will be sharing with the community too. Ronald, could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Uh, no spoilers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or one, one spoiler yeah. if you want, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, Vasilio already told that we we are using CloudFormation, but we plan to uh, migrate to Terraform. I, I want to explain why. So uh, 
besides Picquario, uh, right now I'm working on another project with AWS infrastructures and Kubernetes. And if, you know, for Picquario, we need to maintain infrastructure for a uh, like single large application with multiple environments. So in, in, here uh, in this project, I need to work on a large number of small or medium sized applications with dynamic life cycle. So, and all of them are separated from uh, each other. They run in different EKS clusters because of uh, like customer requirements. So it's really necessary here to be able to quickly launch, update, migrate between accounts uh, or completely remove this application and the infrastructure. Uh, right now we're talking about, I think, 15, 15 applications and it seems like their number will continue to grow. So automation, automation is definitely needed here and we're already using CloudFormation. Uh, so this is like uh, native infrastructure as code tool for AWS. But so yeah, uh, currently I'm working on migrating from that to Terraform and TerraGround because despite the fact that CloudFormation is a good tool, in our case, uh, the combination of Terraform and TerraGround will make working with the infrastructure more efficient and convenient because TerraGround allows uh, you to define Terraform code once and then specify parameters using variables or application, environment, region, or AWS account level. So it's let, uh, just let's, uh, it lets you keep your autom automation configuration dry, uh, which is something we lack in CloudFormation. So I'm now like in uh, early stage of work, but I can already see that it is uh, worth it. Wow. You're very busy. And on top of all this, so when you're not writing, when you're not writing articles and, and, and diving into these technical topics, you're quite a guitarist. Uh, can you tell me about that experience, you know, and your evolution as a guitarist, when you started, what you're doing now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I play on electric guitar. I think I've been playing for uh, about two, three years. Okay. So, um, so I just. I have uh, like uh, lessons every week. I have lessons with my teacher, and I uh, learn uh, like uh, new techniques and songs that I like to listen, and I record them for myself. I think mostly I play like metal uh, and some indie rock. Metal, yeah. indie rock, not necessarily neighbors all the time, but I think that's healthy. <laughs> no, I think it's good. I think it's good. No, no, I really, I really mean that. I think. It's good to listen to everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. And in the same way we're talking about tools, just because you don't like music doesn't mean you can't appreciate or understand, oh, well, how do they go about creating this song? You know, what's the song structure? Things of that nature. If people listen to metal and only hear noise, they're missing out on a lot. Yeah. And if we're talking about a purely technical perspective, the speed and also the music theory that goes behind a lot of metal is very, very complex. Um, as a As a drummer... At a like I said, at a you know you can do CrossFit or you can play metal drums. You know, <laughs> exercise like it's really intense, really really sharp tempos that you have to be keeping uh, keeping in mind. Um, Basili, I understand you have a bit of a music background as well. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, uh, I I'm a one man band. I say I produce music, I sing, I write lyrics, melodies, etc. So I'm just uh, you know putting it all together and uh, I say that like our topic right now is I say on this podcast is technology and uh, one thing I really appreciate about you know uh, producing music nowadays is how it depends on technology because uh, nowadays music is very technological like you have all those like plugins and processing and sound design techniques that were impossible like years ago and in the same way as like kubernetes is uh, you know opening your possibilities to uh you know come up with better services and with like with more high quality services and just open up your possibilities i'd say in the same way uh, the same happens in music too because uh like new technology new plugins new i'd say ai tools and music that come up these days they level up the game too and uh Again, as with the technology, 
in the music you gotta keep up with uh you know with the current advancements to you know to improve your game as well so that's uh an interesting you know uh, how these two things seem similar in a way that's a great point you know the democratization of these different tools and technologies whether it's with open source and communities that you can use technologies with music that were previously only in recording studios if they were and it's interesting as well too with the particular customer you know client you talked about with picvario you know video production is something that nowadays a lot oh, of people yes. with the phone and you know CapCut or programs like that so i think there's a lot to be learned through the availability of these different technologies and a lot of it comes down to once again how how willing are you to learn are you willing to accept the fact that you don't know things and that the process, you know, takes time? A really good thing that someone said multiple times is that I've seen on Twitter, someone from the cognitive community, I think it's Ian Coldwater, said, you know, the first step in getting good at something is being terrible at it. And just oh, embrace yeah. that. It's fine. You know, like, Ronald, can you remember when you first started playing guitar, how it sounded? Well, <laughs> it's better to, yeah, better. Yeah, I, I actually, I have... Uh, when I started to play, I up uploaded all this uh, on YouTube for private access. So now I can just uh, watch how I played like two years, three years ago and complain it. Yeah, it was like, uh, it's better to not uh, show it for someone. Oh, but now we really want to see it. Now that it's all good. <laughs> but I think the point is like at an individual level, you can see how far you've come and you can really yeah. appreciate that process of leveling up. Uh, that being said, uh, we can't access your private YouTube videos of guitar, but if people <laughs> want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? Uh, I think the best way is LinkedIn. It should be easy to find me here by using my name. Yeah. Pretty good. No. Hit us up you. on LinkedIn. We'll be happy to talk. Fantastic. Looking forward to the next steps. Uh, be sure to ping me when that you know next blog article comes out about what you're working on right now, Ronald. This is a fantastic conversation, very eye-opening for people that are, you know, everyone's at a different phase, you know? So some people like, that's the thing, you walk into a room and you say Kubernetes, be like, no, 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 talk to me in, you know, 2025 or 28 <laughs> or when I'm retired. And so I think it's, it's really good to get these different perspectives. And also, you know, one of the things that was mentioned is really understanding, empathizing with your customers, thinking about what are their objectives? How do we translate these things into business value? Because they're going to go have to explain this to their boss and they want to be equipped with how much does this cost and what are we getting? Like, <laughs> it's such a basic point, but it's so valuable for everybody out there. Um, so thank you both very much for, for joining us today on the podcast and looking forward to seeing you soon. Bart, thank you so much. That was a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you, Mark. And I expect, I expect to see you in, and hear you on future podcasts with us as well as others because this is very, very informative. So thank you for the work that you put into creating the article and for sharing your knowledge. Perfect. Let's do Cheers. this. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks.